This episode was co-produced by Startup Days, a yearly matchmaking event in Switzerland for startups, investors, corporates, and other key players. Check out startupdays.ch to learn more about this year's edition, taking place in Bern on May 25th. Again, that's startupdays.ch. If you're a founder building a product, building tech, you want to make sure that all your users and customers are represented in the design room. So that's, I think, one of the stronger cases for having diverse teams beyond profit, beyond the moral imperative, also just developing things that are useful, useful for society. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Hilda, uh, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Hi, Sylvan. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on. You're the founder and CEO at WeBloom. You are making inclusion actionable for the tech ecosystem. Before we talk about what you do with your company, I actually want to talk about your background. Your parents were diplomats. So throughout your life, you've lived in South Africa, Ethiopia, the UK, and now in Switzerland. And I wonder how did this international background shape and also change you? I mean, it, it was a huge influence on who I am today. Of course, at the time, was not a big fan, always being the new kid in a new country. My siblings can also attest to that. Um, but honestly, in hindsight, when I think of where I am now, I think it's made me so adaptable. I mean, you can put me anywhere in the world and I will hit the ground running because you know, growing up so frequently in a different country and having to basically start from zero, the world kind of becomes so accessible to you and you realize that the world is so boundless somehow. You Because for us at such a young age, we had access to so many different cultures, so many different ways of life, and that was just the norm. And so today, the way I see the world is really as this um, super accessible place to me. So I, I really feel boundless somehow um, in my per- perception of, of the world and uh, what my opportunities are. And I really, I, I think I can attribute that to growing up all over the place from a really young age. Absolutely. If, if someone asks you, what do you call home or where do you call home? Is that temporary and you would say Switzerland now or what would the answer to that question? So that's very interesting because I never had an answer to that before because um, I really didn't feel anywhere home. I'm originally Namibian, so that's my passport, but I never grew up there. So I, I really don't have, I used to not have a sense of home, but since moving to Switzerland, because now I have a family of my own, I have uh, two little girls and, and my husband, um, I think that family dynamic has really made Switzerland feel really like home because of that. So for the first time, I actually feel at home somewhere. Um, and yeah, funnily enough, that Switzerland, you know, I would have never imagined that Switzerland would be the place to make me feel home. Um, but here we are. And yeah, I'm super grateful for that. That's wonderful. And you've said you're Namibian by passport, but you've spent most of your life living abroad. So in a way, you've actually always been a natural outsider, right? 
Is this also what inspired you, your passion for promoting diversity and also inclusion? Exactly. Yeah, I, I feel like growing up, always, you know, being the new kid, uh, having to start from over, you are naturally always the outsider coming into other people's worlds. Um, you are naturally the underdog, right? And you kind of, yeah, have to start from zero. So continuously having to go go through that, I definitely can very much empathize with people who feel a bit on the outskirts, not very included, uh, can't really see themselves represented in society and therefore feel excluded. But also at the same time, that made me uh, really kind of go into diversity and inclusion, but also the fact that I grew up in so many places, uh, experienced so many different cultures and different ways of living and really kind of uh, in real life lived multiculturalism, it also exposed to me that there's so much value in multiculturalism. There's so much value in exposing yourself um, to different kinds of people, because that's when you realize that actually we're not that different. I mean, I know in society, we love to highlight how different we all are. And yes, there are some different nuances that, that we, we might have culturally or, you know, ethnically, but at the, at the bottom line, at the foundation, there's so much that we share and so much that we can, you know, connect on and, and learn from each other. And I think um, taking that into a, a business or corporate perspective, um, it's that kind of sentiment is is further scaled in terms of the opportunities of you know multiculturalism um, and having diversity and inclusion being something more norm and mainstream. So yeah, definitely always being the underdog understanding what it means to be an outsider, but also, you know, directly and firsthand seeing the beauty of multiculturalism um, really kind of, you know, set the scene for my current work in diversity and inclusion. Amazing. And that's exactly what we want to talk about today, right? The topic is diversity in startups and the workspace in general. So the first question naturally is, what does the Swiss landscape look like nowadays in terms of gender diversity? Yeah, in terms of gender diversity, I think the Swiss startup landscape has a long way to go. Um, just like in terms of representations, the numbers aren't looking so good. Currently, uh, only 20% of Swiss entrepreneurs are female entrepreneurs, and more so, uh, only 10% of tech-based entrepreneurs are female entrepreneurs. So just from a representation standpoint, it's not faring so great. And of course, I think there's a number of various forces that are influencing um, those trends. Um, but yes, I think uh, the, the Swiss landscape has a long way to go just in terms of um, kind of driving more awareness among women that this is a possibility for them to be an entrepreneur. Um, but yeah, on top of that, it's, it's very also hard um, to find current statistics around uh, gender equality in the startup landscape. So that's something that, you know, we bloom, we also want to kind of get more uh, numbers and awareness around that so that we can take more kind of directed action, informed action. Um, but yes, I think Switzerland, though, though it has, you know, not so great numbers, uh, it's 
uh, within Europe that kind of echoes those numbers. So I think it's it's not a, a solely Swiss problem. It's a European-wide problem. I mean, I, I think the, the very popular number, 1.9% of VC funding in Europe in 2022 went to female founders. Which is shockingly low. That's shocking. It's crazy. Yeah, it's shocking. Um, and this is, you know, we're in 2023 and we still have this huge financing gap. And yeah, it's 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 shocking. It's a shame, of course. But also there's a lot of opportunities being left on the table. Um, you know, not accessing these solutions and ideas has real consequences for, you know, broader society. Um, so, yeah, it's there's a long way to go. Um, so a lot to do. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I hope slowly but surely we can start to bridge this gap. And where do you see Swiss women or women in general running into obstacles that men most likely don't face? Because there are probably reasons why we see this gap of shockingly no low numbers of VC funding going to female-led startups. Yeah, and I think before like we talk about the obstacles, I have to say that structurally and institutionally, Switzerland is doing a lot to bridge this gap. So there is a Gender Equality Act to make sure that all of the private sector and public sector is basically in line with, you know, making sure that everyone has equal opportunities. There are so many different um, programs out there to support women and to um, really, you know, try and make economic participation easier and more accessible. And I say that to say that there's a lot you can do institutionally and on a policy side, but there's also a lot of cultural forces that is kind of running counter to all of that activity that's going on on the institutional um, and economic side in terms of uh, creating more access. So I think in ter the, the obstacles, of course, it's hard to say objectively that this is what's happening currently, but for sure, subjectively, uh, you know, a lot of observations and trends point to something that's more cultural, right? Something that's not so tangible or easily pointed out or defined. Um, and a lot of the times also internalized among uh, Swiss women. So if, if, if let's say, I don't know if you know about, about the tyranny of low expectations, but if a society kind of expects you to be a certain way or take a certain role, you kind of internalize that and also develop an image of yourself that is aligned with that role. And unless you see enough role models or people around you that kind of push you to break out of that role, you kind of start to participate within that cycle. And that's why a lot of the times we, we uh, meet people that say, oh, I don't think entrepreneurship is for me or, you know, uh, full-time, you know, work is not for me, which is also fine. But I think if it's something that's imposed on them and then internalized, it, it becomes quite problematic. So there's a lot out there in terms of policy and institutional support, but there's also a lot of cultural forces in terms of, you know, the obstacles that women are facing that I think impedes them fully participating economically uh, in Switzerland. And I know this is a big question, but how can we actually fix this gap? Is it mandatory that we introduce quotas and say we need to have a 50-50 or close to 50-50 quota in C-levels of startups and, and companies in general. 
Should we focus on unbiased hiring practices? Or what are the things that we can and also should be doing to really fix this gap and close it? Yeah, I think there's um, multiple solutions. I think what you mentioned, the, the quotas and the unbiased hiring practices, I think should not be goals in and of themselves. They should be kind of a means to an end, um, meaning that we don't want to always rely on quotas, right? Because I think on the other end of a quota is a woman walking into a room and feeling like they're there as the quota hire, not that they really earned it. And ask any woman, including me, I want to earn whatever space I'm in, right? So I think a qu quotas um, are really great to kind of initially get women in the door and start to break those barriers, but they should not be a long-term goal. We should not be thinking that quotas should be the be-all and end-all of you know, diversity in the workplace. Um, and I think what we really need to be doing is, is more difficult work, work, which is changing minds. I think, you know, setting up quotas, creating nice laws and policies um, is really important, but it's kind of very superficial, right? Um, and it's easy. And I think that's why people do it. It's the easy first step. But what needs to be accompanied with these uh, solutions is that longer term, very difficult work of helping people change minds. Um, because at the at the bottom of uh, many of these trends is people's, um, let's say, approach or perception of the opposite sex and what they expect from them and internal biases that they may have that are kind of manifesting in very negative ways, ways that they not they may not necessarily be aware of. So we need to start doing the work of understanding how we change minds and perceptions um, and also doing the hard work of promoting the fact that there is so much efficiency to be gained from including everyone in society. That it's not just kind of a moral imperative, which of course it is, but there's so much economic opportunity as well that we're leaving on the table by leaving women or people of ethnic minorities out. So um, this kind of dual messaging is really important. And I think what's also very important that sometimes people get too carried away with is they start to say, okay, diversity means profit, which it's not always like this kind of one dimensional binary, right? Yes, diversity can increase profit, but not diversity for diversity's sake. That's when you get start getting the token hires, you know, just someone who's there to, to be the diversity hire. Um, but diversity can only kind of uh, translate into profit when the hard work is uh, is being done about understanding how these diverse teams can actually come together and work effectively um, and kind of tap into their different perspectives. But if you just kind of do it very surface level, just for the sake of diversity and for the sake of having that kind of, you know, token higher, um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, trans translate into profit. So I think that's also uh, a false equivalency that we hear a lot of in DNI that you know diversity and inclusion means more profit. Um, but there's many steps in between that that I think we also need to consider. That makes a lot of sense. And I also like what you said before that we need to have more role models to show you this is possible. There are people out there doing exactly this to hopefully motivate more people to pursue that path. And Diversity is so much more than just the, the gender equality, right? 
And I can literally, I cannot believe that I'm still asking this question in 2023, but what about ethnicity? How friendly or unfriendly is Switzerland for tech employees who happen not to be white? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to kind of give a general answer to that question because I think also the, the Swiss workplace landscape is so varied. You have so many different companies with so many different policies and cultures. Um, so it's hard to kind of find a common trend of, of what the the experience is for ethnic minority workers, um, particularly in the workspace. But what we can do is kind of, um, what or the data that we do have is the experience of ethnic minorities generally in Switzerland, right? So I think that can give us somewhat of a feeling for how that relates to the workplace and, and corporate life. And it's not, of course, one-to-one, -one, but it gives us some sort of feeling. So currently in Switzerland, there was a report that was released in 2022 that basically um, showed what the sentiments are among Swiss people. And it, it showed or reported basically that 17% of uh, Swiss people have negative stereotypes um, towards black people. And 21% of Swiss people have negative stereotypes to, towards Muslim people. So that's kind of broadly in Switzerland, um, which of course is not great. So you can imagine how those numbers translate maybe in the corporate workspace, uh, not to say again that it's one-to-one, -one, right? But for sure, there are some of these negative stereotypes that are being held within our society. So yes, it's, I think, unfortunately, uh, probably still a huge challenge um, in the workspace and very challenging as well in in, in settings where, again, you can't very clearly point out the challenge. It's more maybe, you know, microaggressions that are happening and, and little very subtle cues that you can necessarily detect and therefore uh, remedy, which is, I think, even more difficult, right? Um, so, yes, I think because it's a societal problem, a lot of that is probably also trickling down into the workspace. And unfortunately, something that also often happens or that people are talking about is that there are reactionary voices or trolls on the internet. How, how should we respond to, to these things happening? Is there any good way to handle or to react to something that either happens to you directly or that you observe or just notice happening in the world? Yeah, I think individually, it's never a good idea to engage with uh, that sort of negative energy. I think whatever you're trying to achieve may be defend yourself, prove a point. Um, it's really just wasting your time and energy and has no, any, it has no uh, positive output or outcome to the engagement, more of just draining your energy and really distracting you from whatever it is you're doing. I think when it comes to um, negative external um let's say, voices, we need to understand baseline, have a self-awareness of what it is we're doing, what we want to do, and what we want to achieve. Um, and once you know that, then you can have a more kind of useful way of engaging with, with that. I, I would say individually, never engage with that. I think when you see it happening, definitely speak up. Uh, if it's like a precarious situation, maybe not you know, intervene directly, but, you know, call for help and, but definitely don't be a quiet bystander. Um, and I think generally try to support organizations that are doing that sort of work, because I think everyone has 
their day-to-day lives. And I also don't like it when women or people of color suddenly also have to take on the job of being uh, an activist because of their race or their gender. You know, it's not necessarily everyone that wants to do that day in and day out. You know, people have other things that they want to be doing. So I think, um, yeah, very wisely uh, choose how to use your time um, on this planet. And, I, and I'd say generally don't engage with negativity. It's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. And all in all, the outcome is never positive. I like that. You already talked a bit about the benefits of having a more diverse team. You said it can, but doesn't have to equal to more profit. What are some other benefits that you see out there of working or having more diverse teams? Yeah, so there's definitely the the benefit of um, having better financial returns. So there's been research that have said that diverse teams yield about 32% uh, more financial return. So of course, there's that profit element, but there is also an element of what you're developing, right? I think a lot of the times in the corporate space, we don't mention enough all of the harmful tech products that have been developed by homogenous teams. I think most people know the very famous example of the seatbelt, uh, which was developed by uh, male, uh, using male dummies as tests, which actually um, led to the fact that women are more vulnerable to car accidents uh, because the seatbelts aren't catered to their bodies. So that's like a a real huge negative because there just weren't enough women in the room during the design, right, of that. Um, And then we also have the the most recent example of VR glasses that actually make many women nauseous because women have a specific uh, physiology where their their, um, sensories in their ears make them Uh, particularly nauseous after some stimulus. And this, again, wasn't taken into account during the um, development and design of some of these VR glasses, right? Um, So just things like that, you know, being able to create services and products that are actually useful for everyone. So again, moral imperative, but also tapping into broader user and customer base, right? So I think that is really, really important um, just for your bottom line, right? So if you're you know, a founder, building a product, building tech, you want to make sure that all your users and customers are represented in the design room. So that's, I think, one of the stronger cases for having diverse teams beyond profit, beyond the moral imperative, also just developing things that are useful, useful for society. It really does sound like a no-brainer that we leave so much potential on the table as companies, but also as a society, if we don't engage in more diversity and more inclusion. So my question for you is, what are the top three things, if you had to pick only three, that we should focus on in 2023 to make Switzerland more inclusive? Okay, that's a good one. I think the top three things, I'd say, firstly, financing. So signing more checks for female founders. I think that is a great way to get the ball rolling for, you know, really supporting um, technologies and products that are developed by female founders, which typically are technologies and products which are targeted towards, you know, helping society. So female founders are disproportionately more likely to develop uh, products and services that help 
society. Um, so it's kind of like compound benefits. Um, secondly, I would really uh, in you know urge everyone to interrogate their DNI assumptions because I think though DNI is very important, I think it needs some demystification. Um, I think probably most people have attended a DNI training. I have attended DNI training, and it's kind of getting this um, bad rep uh, at the moment, which I've been I've said through some painful DNI trainings myself, and this is something we're also trying to revolutionize, creating um, you know DNI solutions, diversity and inclusion solutions, which are actually triggering the right outcomes. At the moment, many of them are creating more tension in workspaces, making people more uncomfortable because now they're like overthinking everything, right? Um, so I'd say rethink what you think about diversity and inclusion. Um, and lastly, I would just um, really challenge everyone to get involved. I think diversity and inclusion is also something that's uh, notoriously only kind of for women. I think you find mostly women interested in that, right? And most men that we engage with too feel like they don't really have a place in the conversation, um, whereas it's the complete opposite, right? Uh, it's something that uh, everyone has a stake in and everyone can get involved with. And only when we involve everyone can it actually have like real um, big positive outcomes. So yeah, those are the three things I'd say that we should focus on. Amazing. I hope people listening to this now also start, okay, how can I contribute to these three points or embed them in, in my company or in my personal life? So to wrap up the conversation today, Hilda, we also prepared some rapid fire questions. I give you either a short question or different options to choose from, and you have to answer it in one sentence. You ready? Okay, I'm ready. Who was your role model as a child? Role model as a child was my mom. Nice. Do you often second guess yourself? Yes. Always second guessing myself. Yeah. In, if a future female founder is in the audience wondering whether or not to start her business, what would you tell her? I would tell her just do it. Yeah. I, I think people sometimes hesitate too much. And, you know, as I said, I also sometimes second guess myself, but you need to just do it. And when was the last time that you celebrated something great? Oh, oh, wow. When is the last time I celebrated something great? Da, 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 da. Because we often forget to celebrate the big things, the wins in, in Switzerland. I feel we could celebrate a bit more and st stop criticizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, I think, yes, the last time I celebrated something big, I think was a couple of years ago when we uh, received a grant from the EEG. Yeah. Amazing. That's a very good reason to celebrate. And I know that Switzerland feels home to you right now, but I still wonder of all the countries you've been to, is there a favorite one where you enjoyed life the most or is there no such thing? <laughs> no, definitely. I'd say my favorite one is the UK because I, I spent the most time there and it was really during my formative years. So from the age of about 16 to about 24, I was there. Um, so yeah, the UK has a special place in my heart because of that. Amazing. Hilda, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you today and I wish you lots of success and all the best for the future. Thank you so much, Sylvan, for having me. 
hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>